A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Thoughtful Faith. My name is Micah Nicolaisen and I will be your host today. Um, on the line with me is LDS blogger Nathaniel Givens. Nathaniel, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Um, Nathaniel, like I said, is uh, is a pretty active uh, blogger. He blogs on a variety of topics. Um, and uh, during his uh, when he's telling his story, I'm sure he'll uh, explain a little bit about uh, the things he enjoys writing about and will uh, put links on our website to, to his blog so that people can can check him out there. Um, in case you didn't, uh, in case you missed the last name, uh, Nathaniel is indeed uh, uh, related to some other famous Givens, um, Terrell and Fiona Givens, who have been on our podcast pretty recently in the past and are uh, well known and well respected throughout the uh, sort of intellectual Mormon community. And Nathaniel is their son. I. Uh, was introduced to some of Nathaniel's writings pretty recently. Um, he is a guest blogger at Times and Seasons, and he uh, just finished uh, writing a series on the concept of epistemic humility uh, and how it relates to Mormonism. And I found uh, his writings really fascinating there, and I thought it would be a great topic for um, for an episode of our podcast. And so uh, Nathaniel was uh, gracious enough to... Uh, to agree to come on, and Nathaniel, we're glad you're here with us. Thanks. Um, so just so our listeners are able to get a kind of an understanding a little bit about your background, obviously people, uh, I don't I don't want people just to know you as Terrell and Fiona Givens' son. I want them to know you for <laughs> your own independent identity. So um, if, you, if you wouldn't mind, I think it'd be great for sort of the first uh, few minutes of the interview, just... Give us a little bit about your backstory, and so if you wouldn't mind, tell us what we need to know about you. Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. Although I gotta say, I don't, I don't mind being known as the, uh, the son of uh, Terrell and Shannon Givens. I'm pretty proud of them, so that's okay with me. They are they are pretty awesome. So, so. yeah, I, I agree. Not that I'm biased. Um, so I think my background is kind of typical. I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, what to say. I, I grew up on the East Coast. Um, my family has been kind of, you know, faithfully in the church uh, all through my childhood. Um, I was the oldest of six kids. Um, I, I kind of was a good kid and followed most of the rules, didn't get into a whole lot of trouble. Um, I've learned later on in life that that has more to do with uh, a healthy fear of consequences than it does with any kind of righteous living on my part. But for whatever reason, I stayed mostly out of trouble. Um, and yet, despite that, I didn't find that I, I really got along that well with uh, with the other good Mormon kids for whatever reason. Um, and eventually, I ended up going to, uh, to a high school that was, um, I was usually the only Mormon, depending on, you know, who was there based on what year I was in the high school. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So when you said you weren't like uh, some of the other uh, active LDS kids, uh, what do you mean by that? 
Um, we got along just fine. I just didn't seem to have a whole lot in common with them. I, I had more in common with kind of the skeptics, and so I tended to hang out sometimes with, you know, either just non-Mormons or with the Mormon kids who got into a little bit more trouble. Um, I don't know, for whatever reason. Um, you gotcha. know, I think part of it is just that, you know, my parents always kind of had a... I don't know. They they were very very interested in the gospel and, and continue to love the gospel and they do love the church, but they perhaps didn't look to the church for quite as much guidance in in their day to day affairs as as is maybe usual with Mormon culture. Um, so I kind of grew up with a little bit of a healthy disregard, I think, for some of the conventions. I mean, just as one example, when I wasn't very interested in the Boy Scouts, my you know my mom was like, okay, well then you shouldn't go. And you know that was a little bit of, that was a little bit of scandal in the ward because apparently I don't, I'm not sure which standard work has has Boy Scouts in it, but it's a church <laughs> program, and so you're supposed to do right. it, right? And, and my parents, you know, there was there was no animosity on their part; they just didn't, you know, really see the benefit or, or understand how it was helping me or, or why it was really important for me to go, and so I just didn't go. And you know, to me, it was no big deal, but apparently that was kind of a signal of of something, right? Of of not being sufficiently loyal, perhaps. And so there were there were little things like that that I didn't think about much at the time, but might have had something to do with it. Gotcha. Okay. So a little bit of uh, a little bit of going against the grain as a as a teenager. Yeah. So I just had you know I, th- I think a really good healthy childhood. I had a lot of fun, and then I, uh, I you know I went on my mission when I was nineteen. I served my mission in Hungary from two thousand to two thousand two. Um, that was actually a very tough experience for me. Hungary is a it's an awesome place. I love the language, but it, it was just, it was tough for me. Um, but it was good. I think I was unlearning a lot of the wrong lessons, um, things that I just needed to, to leave by the wayside. And so, uh, so it was a good experience, but it was hard. Um, came back, finished up my undergrad at the University of Richmond. Uh, I, I had studied a lot of philosophy, but I quit when I realized that nobody believed what they were saying and did math instead so that I could be right and wrong. Um, so got my bachelor's in math, um, got married to my lovely wife, Robin, um, done a couple of master's degrees since then and kind of bounced around trying to figure out what to do. Wow, very cool. What are your uh, master's degrees in? I got my first one in systems engineering from the University of Virginia um, and my second in economics from the University of Michigan. Wow. Wow, that's that's uh, that's pretty heavy stuff, man. <laughs> well, I knew what I wanted to study, but I couldn't find a discipline that really matched the questions that I'd been wrestling with ever since I was a teenager. So I, it was just a process of trying to find, you know, what's the subject that will most address the, the topics that I'm passionate about. And I never really found it. So what, um, what kind of questions were you trying to have answered by your in your graduate work? Um. The the question that I've been really interested in, um, definitely going back to high school and pretty much as far back as I can remember, is just trying to understand um, how humans learn. And it sounds really hopelessly general, and that's why I've I've had a problem um, trying to learn more about it. But the 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 thing that's always fascinating to me is how do we come to grasp the truth? Um, and so I, I've studied it, coming at it from a lot of different angles. Um, I spend a lot of time actually thinking about artificial intelligence. Uh, because I wanted it to be kind of a rigorous uh, pursuit of the question, and I found that some of the formal mathematical models, especially things like reinforcement learning, were really helpful at kind of getting to the abstractions of, of how do we learn the truth, especially confronted with things like um, 
well, how do we deal with ignorance? And it's one of the biggest things, right? Uh, there's that famous Donald Rumsfeld quote about the unknown unknown. Right. That right. Everybody, everybody kind of made fun of him for it, but he had a really, really good point. The, the fact that there's things out there that we don't even know that we don't know means that everything we think we know is kind of held hostage to our own ignorance. And at any moment, we could learn some new fact that would make us see everything that we believed up to that point in a totally new light. So how, how do we grapple with that? You know, how, how do we react to that? How do we live under the under this kind of threat of, of constant, you know, a learning is so threatening, right? You can change everything you think you know. Gotcha. So the the thought I had when you were when you're saying that is, and I'm just going to throw this out there. So um, if there is such a thing as eternal truth out there, what you're saying is uh, making a distinction between the existence of truth and, uh, and our ability as humans to comprehend it or even begin to grasp it or understand it. Is that kind of, am I sort of understanding where you're coming from? Yeah, absolutely. It's not that I question the existence of, of truth or objective reality. It's all about the problem we have in trying to, to to grasp it. You know, can our senses be relied upon? Do our minds really understand the right concepts? Um, you know, I, I, I took a class in, um, I guess it was modern Western philosophy, and the first philosopher we studied was Descartes. And when we were reading his meditations and talking about how he had progressively doubted, you know, first the operative senses and then doubted one thing after another until he got down to the point where he was in a solipsistic existence, there was nothing he could be certain of. That really blew me away. I mean, I don't know if everybody reacts that way when they read Descartes or if I was a little unusual, but it was a good week where my mind was just reeling, and I, I was having such a hard time dealing with the fact that nothing was certain. And how do I how do I live with that? And it seemed like most people just kind of ignored it. And I and I, I couldn't do that. How can you just ignore the fact that nothing you think you know you actually know? That's that's a big deal. And then Hume came next, and was you know even adding more fuel to the fire, just studying doubt and uncertainty. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been studying ever since. Okay, cool. How has um, how did you find studying economics and 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 your other studies? How did that sort of uh, did, did that feed? Did that satisfy those questions for you, or did they just uh, you know uh, how did that how did that help you in your quest? Well, I think that a lot of times the important thing isn't to answer the question; it's just to, to grapple with it. And so, what I benefited from in the two courses that I took was uh, was just learning the tools. Um, the concept of emergence um, from complex systems is what I took away from the systems engineering degree, and I think that's a really useful concept that I've used a lot since then. And then in, um, when I was studying economics, what I was most interested in was decision theory, which is, you know, how do people um, how do people deal with limited information and changing information? So I was interested in a lot of microeconomic models, um, bounded rationality, and other things like that, that attempted to, you know, to deal with the fact that um, humans don't behave rationally. And how can we explain that, and what can we learn from apparently irrational human behavior? So uh, that was, it was fascinating, and both of those provided me with models and tools that I've used since then to just, you know, to try to be, uh, as I like to think of it, um, skeptical in a productive way and confused in a productive way. Interesting. So, um, so as an adult, and as you've uh, sort of gone through your higher education and your graduate degrees, how is your how is this sort of uh, interplayed with your relationship to Mormonism? Um, it's been interesting in that 
you know, I consider myself a, a faithful Mormon, and my testimony is very important to me. Um, and, you know, I believe things like, you know, I believe that the Church is true. But when I say that phrase now, at, you know, 31 years old, and I think of what I meant when I said the phrase when I was 21 years old, it's not really the same concept at all. Um, so the Church has kind of remained constant in one sense, and that you know, I have a strong testimony, um, and, and, I, and I believe it, but the content of that testimony has really shifted dramatically throughout my life, and I have every reason to believe that we'll continue to do so. Gotcha. Have there ever been any uh, any moments where you've had some sort of uh, like fundamental doubts that have that have sort of sort of shook your testimony, or any crisis of faith um, that's that's worth mentioning? Well, I think that's one of the things that makes it makes my approach or my experiences a little different is that I my crisis of faith was Descartes, and my crisis of faith was crisis in the face of my ability to understand reality at all. So, sure, I have doubts about the church. I think we we should all we should all have doubts. It's just part of our human experience to doubt things. But for me, it's yeah, I, I doubt whether or not the church is true. I also doubt whether or not you know. Empiricism is a valid way of approaching the world, so it becomes one doubt among many. So, yeah, my, my faith crises have not been centered so much on the church or the, the gospel in particular. Rather, my doubts about the church, um, about anything from modern day prophets to the historicity of the Book of Mormon, have all been kind of placed within a context of, yeah, well, I, I have doubts about these things, but I have doubts about a lot of them. Right. So, your doubts are um, focused at um, human attempts at epistemology in general, <laughs> not just at exactly. uh, Mormonism. Okay, that's cool. I yeah. like that. Okay, um, you know that uh, sort of the question that that came up in my mind as you were saying that is, you know, in the absence of uh, or in the presence of of doubting sort of various methods of epistemology, um, how. You know, and and you talk about this a little bit in your writings. How all models fail ultimately. Why why is Mormonism a more beneficial model than the other ones? Even though they're all sort of imperfect. You know, for example, like you mentioned empiricism. Um, is there? I mean, do you sort of preference one above the other, or do they all work together in your opinion in terms of trying to understand reality and truth in the universe? I think Mormonism is the only faith tradition I could ever belong to, because it's the only one that refuses to compartmentalize so doggedly. Um, there's just no separation, right, of the sacred versus the mundane. It's all truth, and we treat it all as kind of being in the same bucket. And I haven't found that, at least. In, in, I certainly don't want to denigrate any other faith experience, but that's just what I love about Mormonism is just how eclectic it is, right? Mormonism, as I understand it, it provides certain core beliefs, um, the atonement of Christ being the most important, certain kind of fundamental principles, bedrocks. But after that, it says, figure it out, right? We have to go out and study the best books and, and learn from other cultures, other traditions, other philosophers. You know, this is a lot of what my parents write about, and so I, I've been right. being in the home to hear about it. But this whole idea that during the atonement, it wasn't some kind of wasteland where no truth was found, but that instead you know, truth was being taught by poets and philosophers, so it's our job to go find it, and, and I love that. You know, that's, that's probably what I love the most about, about Mormonism as a faith, is that it encourages you to be open-minded and to, to go out and to find these things. In fact, I think that the, uh, the kind of rigorous hierarchy of our Church as an institution kind of exists to support 
private eclectic system. You know, it provides kind of a scaffolding for us all to have something that we have in contact or in in in, uh, in common with our fellow Mormons. We have certain core beliefs that we kind of all we kind of all share. But then from that point on, we we're, we're left this incredible degree of freedom to try to figure it out on our own and to learn and grow. Yeah, I really like that too. And um, you know, that's that's definitely a large part of why I love uh, your parents' uh, writings and perspectives so much. And obviously you agree with them. And I think, you know, um, all three of you are sort of uh, very heavily channeling um, a lot of the things Joseph said um, during uh, during the early early era of Mormonism. And that uh, hopefully will uh, will continue to be a part of our our faith tradition. Um, so that's cool. So, you know, uh, so that's sort of your your uh, your greatest appreciation of Mormonism. Is there any other sort of uh, uh, strong pillars of your faith that um, that you derive a lot of uh, satisfaction from in terms of Mormonism? Um, yeah, I would just say the only other thing I like about, or the one other thing I'd want to mention is just the extent to which Mormonism really teaches us to be responsible um, for our own relationship with God. And I think that's something that culturally we often fail to live up to, that is there in the, the teachings, um, that the, uh, the leaders have kind of a very defined role, what they're there for, um, and they leave a lot of latitude open and responsibility for, for personal efforts. So I mean, it's kind of similar, but just a different way of looking at it, I guess. Cool. So Mormonism is good because it provides sort of a... Um, a basic framework or model <laughs> um, that everybody can can work off of, but at the same time, you know, allows all of us the freedom to experience God in our own way and to connect to the divine in our own way and to, you know, as we hear all the time in Mormonism, work out our own salvation. Exactly, yeah. And also it's really good at teaching people that they should help. And that sounds a little ridiculous, but I just have to I have to mention that. There's there's something incredibly inspiring to me about the way that I can move across the country and call the elders from and be like, uh, guys, I need some help moving and people will show up. Yeah. Um so so, you know, I think people dig on Mormon culture sometimes and I, I think there are certainly aspects of Mormon culture that you can criticize, but we should probably also give some credit. I've I've never had friends outside the church who had the same attitude towards service and towards just practical helping out that I've encountered again and again within the Mormon community. So Right. Credit or credit to. Yeah, I, I like that you bring that up because it's um, sometimes it's easy for me to kind of rag on <laughs> on mainstream LDS culture, but say what you will about it. Um, Mormonism creates really awesome people. Mormons Mormons are great, and uh, like you said, are always willing to help out uh, one another and help help each other. So I I think you are. It's very appropriate to uh, to give uh, give the church and um, our faith tradition credit for that. So that uh, I think, sort of in a in a very high level, kind of goes through. Is there anything anything else you want to share, sort of about your testimony or your core beliefs or your story, um, that's 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 sort of pertinent to the rest of the stuff we're going to talk about? Uh, nothing comes to mind right at the moment. Okay, cool. So as you um, sort of went through your twenties, it sounds like you you had a you were exposed to a lot of different ideas uh, through your higher education and that um, sort of uh, uh, played well with your, with your existing uh, perspectives on Mormonism and enhance those and um, whatnot. And then um, 
coupled with that, you have this curiosity about how people find truth and our, our limits and um, abilities to perceive and comprehend truth. You know, what sort of, uh, what sort of in your life sort of brought all those things together? Because, you know, um, you know, I want to sort of connect the dots between those experiences and that sort of journey and how it got you to sort of start writing about this stuff. Um, sure. Um, it's really hard for me to kind of pick a starting point because it's just been this kind of nexus of, of questions and ideas. Um, and it's not so much a question of what made me start writing. It's, I, I always wanted to write and I just didn't never know where to begin. Um, and I finally just decided that I was never going to get to a, a point where I had it all organized, so I might as well just start. Um, epistemic humility is actually a phrase that I first encountered in reading David Brooks' book, The Social Animal, um, and I just really, really liked it as kind of an entry point to talking about a whole lot of different uh, different concepts, both secular and religious. Um, so that's what I just kind of picked as, as the, the first thing to write about. Okay. And so how long – I mean, so when, when did you first uh... – uh, when were you first introduced to that concept of epistemic humility? Uh, that particular phrase I read just last year. Um, okay. But it was really kind of like a recognition. I was like, oh, that's what you call this. You know, it was an idea that I've, that I've been building for for a long time. And, you know, it, re- it reflects a lot of different things. I can remember one of the, the first realizations I really had was as an undergrad. Um, and I don't remember exactly what class it was, but I remember there was a specific uh, lecture in philosophy where people were kind of, you know, sharing their opinions about, you know, whatever topic we were discussing, and something about the way they were talking just made me realize these people didn't really believe what they were saying, and they hadn't come to their opinions through anything like a rational process. And, you know, so I was an undergrad at the time, I was 18 or 19 years old, and I was just like, for the first time it occurred to me, people don't believe things because they think they're true. People believe things because they you know, make it easier to get along with their friends or because they make it easier to create a narrative about their own life that they want. Beliefs don't reflect some kind of unbiased, objective evaluation of the facts in front of us to what we think is true and what we think is not. Beliefs reflect our character. Um, and so that was that was one of the real key insights, I think, that, that got me thinking about all this and got me you know, to a point where epistemic humility makes so much sense to me. Yeah, that resonates with me too because, you know, sort of the concepts that, that you wrote about in Times and Seasons have thing, are things that I've been thinking about a lot too for the past couple of years. And that term epistemic humility in your writings actually did a similar thing for me. It was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what you call this stuff. I get it now. Um, so why don't, why don't we just dive in then? Um, tell, us, um, tell us everything there is to know about epistemic humility. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Um, what, let's start with just kind of a basic framework and definition of of what epistemic humility is, at least from from your perspective and understanding. All right. Um, so I, I, I think uh, the simplest definition of the term is that epistemic humility is just an awareness of the limits of our ability to know stuff. Um, and there's different reasons to, to suspect our, our knowledge, right? Um, there's basic stuff, like when we're trying to reason our way through a given number of facts, we make mistakes every now and then. This is why even people who understand the rules of math still get the wrong answer sometimes. When you're know, working out the calculations, it's imperfect. So even if we could see all the facts, 
we still wouldn't necessarily put them together in the right way. But then we don't actually see all the facts. You know, if you think about all the data that is available to you, you know, at any given point in your life, all the things that you could be listening to, you know, even just really basically, you're just in a room, right? And there's all this stuff. And we kind of assume that we know because that we see what's going on around us. But if you look at, you know, some of the cognitive neuroscience, we really don't. The way vision works is that your eyes move around very, very rapidly, focusing on very, very small regions at a time. And you kind of assemble a collage that way. And we're so used to it that we assume that we see the world we're looking at, but we don't. We only see the things that we're paying attention to. The stuff around the corners, you know, around the outside of our vision, we don't really see that at all. And to me, that's just a metaphor for how we go through life assuming that we kind of get it, that we kind of see what's in front of us, and we don't. We only see a very, very small percentage of what's in front of us. And most importantly, the percentage that we see is not random or unbiased. It's a function of what interests us, right? So even if we don't think we're doing it, even if it's totally unconscious, every moment of every day, we are picking and choosing from all the huge ocean of data around us, and we're picking and choosing stuff that interests us or stuff that helps us construct a narrative that we want to believe. I mean, everybody's the hero of their own story, right? You go through your life from day to day, um, and you kind of interpret everything around you, usually in ways that are that are beneficial. There's that saying... Um, we judge ourselves by our intentions and our friends by their accomplishments and our enemies by their failures. And that's just, you know, a really simple example of how we're picking and choosing, even at an unconscious level, in order to protect our ego or in order to, you know, protect us from you know, truths that we might not want to think about. You know, there's a lot of different reasons, but the basic gist of it is we don't know what we think we know, and we're selectively biased about the things that we, that we do know. Okay, so so you know just and then uh, I guess the last piece that I that I had mentioned earlier was just this whole idea of ignorance, right? So we we don't see most of what there is to see, even when we see it, we put it together wrong, and then there's stuff that we don't even know that we're missing at any moment. You know, we could learn some new fact that could overturn everything we think we know. So I guess those are like the three major reasons that we should be humble about our ability to do. Okay, so those three things are the um, the insufficiency of our of our senses to perceive things that are going on our ignorance of the things that we don't know. And then what's the third thing? Just our, our inability to put together the data, even if we have it. Okay. Gotcha. Even when we're the things we're able to perceive our ability to compile it and organize it and make, um, you know, systems of processing are, are also sort of, uh, flawed. Yeah, and, and the one thing I would point out is that it, it's not just that our senses can't be trusted, which is kind of where Descartes started, right? You can be fooled, you can be mistaken. It's that the whole activity of perception is not passive, it's active, right? We You have this model, I think, that you're just this kind of blank slate and you go through the world and you happen to perceive things because they just impinge on your consciousness or something, but that's not how it works. Everything about perception is an active process. We go out and we seek for things to perceive. And so that makes the problem so much worse. It's not just that we're missing some of the information that's out there. It's that we're missing the information selectively. Gotcha. There's a bias to what we pay attention to. Gotcha. Um, So that being said, um, you know, and this is just me kind of throwing uh, random questions at you. Where where is the value of 
of recognizing epistemic humility? Like, where's the virtue in it? Like, why is it? Why? Why do you feel it's important for us to recognize this? Uh, the the fact that we we really don't know a lot of the things that we think we know. Uh, for me, for he, for me here, the the inspiration is really Socrates. Um, he has that quote: "The unexamined life is not worth living." And I've thought about that a lot in my life until I've come to what I think is, is an understanding of what he had in mind. And I think the, the rationale behind that is that the unexamined life is not truly a life at all. The, the idea I have is that if you don't, if you're not epistemically humble, if you're not aware of your own limitations, you're basically going through life on autopilot. Um, what we know about human behavior is that you can pretty much be born and raised and live and die without ever really examining any of your beliefs. You inherit them from your parents, you pick them up from your peers, you don't really question them, and to the extent that you're not questioning your beliefs, they're not actually your beliefs. There's a sense in which you don't even exist at all. You're just like a cog in the machine, right? The belief comes from somebody else, and you inherit it without question and act it out. So where's, where's the you in this picture? You're just a vehicle to convey somebody else's belief. So in order to actually kind of exist in a real sense at all, you know, to be scriptural, I would say, in order to be a thing to, um, to act as opposed to a thing to be acted upon, you have to kind of stop and examine your beliefs, examine your life, as Socrates would say, and say, wait, no, 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 I want to believe things for a reason. And I want to be in control of, of what those reasons are. You kind of take the reins. And so there's just an existential drive. You know, it, even if you couldn't learn more, even if there was no other benefit, I would think it was important just to, to kind of take ownership of your own life. And part of that is an awareness of the problem. Gotcha. Um, that's the first thing. Okay. And then I also think you learn more this way. Um, like, as I was saying, what we see in the world around us is biased, and we'll never be able to be completely objective. But I think we can, you know, exert ourselves, you know, extend the effort to try to be a little less biased than what we learned. One of the reasons I went to grad school to study economics was because I had a certain set of political beliefs, and, and I was kind of comfortable with them, and I kind of believed them, but that wasn't enough. I wanted to know, are these beliefs true? And a lot of them were about economics. And so I said, you know, the only thing that really makes sense is to go out and expose myself to kind of the, uh, the expert level of thinking and, and find out if my beliefs are valid or not. And so that's a way in which we can kind of do an end run around our own biases a little bit. And, of course, it's not perfect. And, of course, we'll never, we'll never be totally objective. But to the extent that we try to force ourselves into situations where the things that we're comfortable with are called into question, I think we not only take ownership, as I was talking about earlier, but we also learn a little bit more. You know, this is why I think it's important for people to be friends with people who have different political views, right? Uh, the Internet makes it really easy to go find a, a circle of friends who kind of share your worldview, and then everybody just kind of reinforces what they all think. Well, that's terrible. You need to go out and you need to make friends with the person who sits next to you at work precisely because that's pretty random. And you're not picking them because they reinforce your beliefs. And you're not picking them because, you know, they're, they're, they're helping you continue to believe the things you already believe. You have no idea what they believe. That's, that's the beauty of random friendship. And so you should go out and care about your fellow man for a lot of reasons. But one of them is because they can be a little bit of a check on your own biased filter. They can help you... you know, through the lens a little bit less darkly. Right. That's cool. I like that. And the reason I ask that question, the reason I ask why why you feel there's there's virtue and value 
in uh, sort of recognizing this is because as you 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 brought up the term uh, uh, bias several times, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on um, things like cognitive biases, but from what I do understand is our brains are kind of wired to seek certainty, and you know the oh, reason definitely strong yeah the reason we congregate around around people that feel and think and believe the same way we do is because we like to feel that we're right and we like to feel that we're certain and we've got things figured out. And so um, we're, we're sort of wired and programmed to, to seek those opportunities and our brain um, will constantly evaluate information in a way that, that, that confirms and reaffirms the preexisting beliefs and ideals that we have and so that being said, you know, what you're proposing sort of goes against <laughs> all of those, all of those natural inclinations. And so that's why, that's why I thought it would be important to, well, well, why would we want to do this? Why would we want to, um, you know, sort of go against the, the grain of our own natural, uh, psyche there? Well, you know, you know what they say about the natural man, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, just, just, to be, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not an expert either. You know, I, I didn't study cognitive neuroscience. I'm not a psychologist. I just, you know, read things that I find are interesting. But you're absolutely right. What it, what it all comes down to is avoiding cognitive dissonance, right? Cognitive dissonance is painful. And so most of the cognitive biases exist to protect us from the pain of dissonance. And one of the greatest sources is uncertainty. We don't like it. We also don't like ambiguity. You know, these are things that we find painful, and so our natural inclination is to pretend we know things that we don't really know. And what I'm saying is, you know, that's dangerous, um, and, and in a way, it, it's self-destructive. So you, you need to fight against it. So let's let's actually talk a little bit about cognitive dissonance. Um, I am actually really, really interested in having a separate podcast that just talks about uh, cognitive dissonance, but maybe just at a very um, basic level, um, and we'll, we'll both recognize that neither of us are experts <laughs> on the subject of cognitive dissonance, but perhaps perhaps we can sort of provide our listeners, those who maybe aren't familiar with that term, what because obviously, um, and it, it comes up in your, in your uh, writings, you know, that's obviously an important component in sort of the process that, that, that you're taking people through in your writing. So uh, would you mind sort of taking a stab at, at explaining what cognitive dissonance is? Yeah, I think the, uh, the textbook definition is it's just like uh, an uncomfortable feeling when you've got two or more different conflicting uh, ideas or beliefs or emotional reaction, uh, reactions going on at the same time. I, I think I might be using it in a little bit of a loose sense. And just whenever there's something in your head, like a belief that causes you pain, that makes you uncomfortable. Um, and as I stated, you know, uncertainty is one of those. And there's a couple of papers that I've read that are really interesting where you can actually, uh, in one of the experiments, people had to make a, a bet, basically. Um, and they were playing for real money, not a lot, but that's what makes it interesting. Um, and so they placed their bet. And then the researcher said, well, would you like some more information, even though we promised it won't be enough information to actually change your bet? Like, it, it won't it won't change your mind, but it'll make you more certain, you know, in what you've already decided. And it's, it's kind of tricky how they set that up. But what they're basically doing is, will people pay just to have less certainty, even if it doesn't actually help change their decision? And the answer was yes. You know, people were willing to give up some other potential winnings just to have less um, less uncertainty. And so that's, you know, I think the best way to think about it is to think of um, psychic pain, you know, psychological pain, as being pretty much the same as physical pain. 
You know, you touch something that's burning and you have an unconscious and immediate reaction to jerk your hand back. Well, your brain pretty much does the same thing. When you come across an idea that burns, that, you know, runs into conflict with something else that you want to believe, you protect yourself. So cognitive dissonance leads to cognitive biases, which are basically defense mechanisms to uh, help us not feel the type of pain we do when, when, you know, when we feel uncertain, when we feel confused, or when we have two ideas in our head that just aren't fitting together with each other. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a good uh, sort of overview. Um, my my introduction to uh, cognitive dissonance was actually uh, reading uh, – are you familiar with Michael Ash, Mike Ash? He's, no, uh, I'm not. He's, uh, he's pretty involved with, uh, with FAIR, and uh, he's given a, a few presentations on cognitive dissonance, and he actually wrote a book called, uh, called Shaken Faith Syndrome where he talks about the relationship um, that cognitive dissonance plays in people who have, who struggle with their testimonies or encounter, you know, troubling uh, aspects of their, of their faith, whether it's, you know, historical issues or uh, doctrinal issues or things like that. And he, he, uh, the way he uh, described it was thought disharmony, you know, that basically, you know, as you, as you already pointed out, your mind is unable to be invested in two conflicting concepts or cognitions. And so, and you know, when those, when those concepts sort of have equal weight, you know, it's, it's, it's your brain really doesn't know what to do about it. And so, um, like you said, it develops uh, coping mechanisms or biases in order to um, quickly <laughs> get rid of the discomfort that, that or disharmony that comes along with those two concepts uh, trying to coexist with each other. Um, and so, you know, for example, if you, uh, you know, and you, you people can experience this uh, talking about things like religion, but like you said, uh, you brought up politics earlier. People can have the same experience about politics. You can feel cognitive dissonance when somebody tells you your grandma's uh, fried chicken recipe isn't the best in the world. You know what I mean? You can you can feel yeah. it. Uh, you, 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 it's something we deal with all the time as as human beings. Um, so anyway, I wanted to sort of lay some basic groundwork on uh, on cognitive dissonance, and so. Um, so what, you know, how does, what's the relationship between cognitive dissonance and epistemic humility then? Um, well, epistemic, well, cognitive dissonance is the greatest threat to epistemic humility. I'd put it that way. Um, if you're epistemically humble, it means that you are acknowledging your uncertainty. And as we just talked about, uncertainty is one of the biggest factors leading, you know, contributors to cognitive dissonance. And so they're, they're, they're connected in that way. Um, and I think it's important if you're going to try to be epistemically humble in practice, then one of the things you're going to be trying to do is avoiding reacting to uh, to cognitive dissonance. So, one lim- to- so uh, epistemic humility isn't a remedy for cognitive dissonance. In fact, what you what I kind of hear you saying is that um, epistemic humility will actually get you to <laughs> swim in it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, and I think that's the point. Um, I. I so the the analogy my dad taught me um, comes from Darwin, and it was when he was studying his you know, theory of evolution, and he was looking at the honeybee, which is adapted so that when it stings, um, you know, when the honeybee stings something, it, it dies. Um, it can't survive because you know, the stinger gets stuck. Um, and Darwin was like, well, this doesn't seem like a very good adaptation, right? Clearly, it would be better if the honeybee, you know, had 
you know, evolve so that it wouldn't die, so they could think something again and again and again. And his insight basically was that evolution is not an optimization routine. Evolution doesn't get things to be as good as they can possibly be. Evolution gets things to be just good enough, and then it stops. Evolution is always, you know, it is basically the idea that you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to run outrun the other guy, right? Right. You just have to do <laughs> the absolute least that you need to get done. Um, and so a lot of the plan of salvation, I think, is all about throwing us into the deep end and causing us to struggle. And struggle is very, very important, and tension is very, very important. You know, if we come down to Earth and we know, without a shadow of doubt, the gospel is true and all this stuff, then where, where's, where's the challenge, right? Because Earth is not, you know, our moral existence is not a test in the sense of, do you get an A or B or C to pass? It's a test in the sense of a trial where we learn and grow, right? The objective is not to get a good grade. The objective is to learn, and that requires struggle, because we, um, just like the theory of evolution, we as humans, we always prefer the path of least resistance. So kind of what I'm saying here is that, yeah, epistemic humility, it's going to trigger cognitive dissonance, and it's going to be uncomfortable. And that's the point, because that discomfort is a sign of, of growth, or, or at least the possibility of potential growth. Gotcha. So, um, you know, Lehi's teaching that there must be opposition in all things, that sort of seems kind of in a similar um, perspective or notion cognitive dissonance can can sort of be that opposition for us that sort of keeps us in check and keeps us from <laughs> being lulled into carnal security, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I mean, and I, and I don't think it's just about keeping us on our toes. I think uh, for me, always the better example is, um, is working out, right? When you go and you lift weights, the point is to pick something heavy. That's, that's, that's the whole point. If you went to lift weights and you picked a, a weight that was really, really light, like you just picked up a piece of paper and you lifted it up and down, you're not doing yourself any good. You need to seek out difficulty. You need to seek out something that's hard. Now, obviously not too hard. You know, there's also, the, you know, we're not supposed to run faster than we have strength and it doesn't do any good to try to, you know, bench press 400 pounds, you know, on the first day. It's probably not on your second or third day either. But, so you don't want to have too much, but you do want to struggle. And, and so that's what the tension is all about. You know, we're here on Earth um, to learn and grow, and the experience of learning and growing is often uncomfortable. And, and I guess you would also argue that the, uh, the, one of the fruits of, of experiencing cognitive dissonance is, is it will, it will it's probably provides sort of the best, most efficient way to, to, to struggle and grow um, and, and, and gain knowledge. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah I would believe that. Uh, of not just, uh, you know, dismissing cognitive dissonance and rejecting ideas and beliefs that conflict with our existing ones, while that may um, make us feel better and just like eating a donut makes me feel better, um, it may not be the best thing for us. Yeah, in fact, I like to think of that as basically a counterfeit salvation, um, because it's it's worse than just a distraction. When you think that you know what's going on, and you think that all is well and dying personally, and you've got it all covered, you're basically adopting a, 
a poor copy of what actual exaltation will be like, right? I, and I mean, I can't say I know exactly what exaltation will be like, but when we talk about the rest of the saints and the rest that comes in the next life, I don't think that that has anything to do with you know, sitting around in a puzzle cloud and having no work to do. It has to do with finally having worked your way through all the confusion and the tension and, you know, and also the, the, the bad habits and the weaknesses that you have. So there's kind of this, this finish line um, that we imagine where once we have worked through all these problems, there will be a kind of rest from that. Well, a lot of people want to take a shortcut, you know, and they don't want to work through the problems to get to a point of rest. They want to deny the problems so that they can rest right now. And so when somebody is epistemically prideful, that is when they think that whatever it is they believe is true and certain, and they don't need to consider it, and they don't need to think about it, and they don't let in any other doubts, and they just build a brick wall around whatever it is they believe, and they say, this is what I believe, and it will never change, they're basically pretending that they've already been exalted, and they haven't been, and they're accepting a counterfeit salvation instead of the real. Cool. Yeah, what you seem to be describing to me is is really what uh, the pure form of skepticism is supposed to be. I think when people hear the word skeptic, they think of somebody that that um, you know is always trying to disprove something or doesn't believe anything. But um, you know, to be a true skeptic means basically means to withhold judgment and to not make any rash decisions or submit to any certainty about any given thing until it's you know, strenuously researched and discussed and analyzed. Um, is that is that also a fair characterization? Oh, absolutely. And I really like that you kind of differentiated and said the true skepticism. There's a lot of skepticism so-called out there these days that has that has nothing to do with skepticism. The uh, the new skeptics, the modern skeptics, are anything but skeptical. They're they're very dogmatic, in my opinion, um, and have really lost kind of the true spirit of skepticism. Gotcha. So in your writings, you know, you actually use um, models from economics to sort of um, outline this. And I don't want to spend a time – I mean, I want people to go and read your read your articles um, uh, to become familiar with that. But uh, the reason I bring that up is, you know, this uh, concept of epistemic humility has a lot of application in different areas um, of our lives, you know, whether it comes – uh, whether it, it we're talking about something like the economy – and um, perhaps not relying on completely, so not being super invested in models that are really, by their nature, incomplete. It can also uh, apply to uh, science. It can apply to um, you know really anything. And so, what I want to sort of shift our conversation to is how um, the concept of epistemic humility and sort of the components of it and the practicality of it applies to Mormonism. And so I'm not exactly sure how we should <laughs> go about doing that, but do you have any some initial thoughts there? Yeah, sure. I, I actually think that epistemic humility is very important for uh, for Mormons in that we still believe in this idea of building a Zion community. Um, and Zion is defined by being of one heart. And I think there's kind of this this implicit belief among Mormons that we tried the whole literal Zion thing a couple of times and it didn't really work out. So we're just going to kind of wait until we all understand the gospel so well, and then we'll do the Zion thing again. And that's not going to work out. Um, and I think what epistemic humility does is it provides a way for us to move towards uh, Zion practically in our actual lives at the world level. And the reason it does that is that if you're epistemically um, humble, then you, you still believe things. 
you have your beliefs, the things that you think are most probably true. But when you come across, you know, a fellow Mormon and they believe things that are different, well, then you're very good at not being threatened by that, right? Because you've had all this practice with cognitive dissonance. So when you meet, you know, your bishop or just your teacher or just, you know, a fellow Mormon, um, and, and they say, well, you know, I don't believe that. I, I believe that it's this way. Then you're very good at not going, well, that's not true. You're a threat to the church. You know, we have to have one or the other. There, there's room for, for understanding um, diversity, but more importantly, there's a, there's a foundation. Because if two people believe different things and live side by side, that's better than fighting, but it's still not being of one heart. It's still not unity. And so the way to find unity, even when people have different opinions, I believe, is to kind of go one level deeper. So if I believe, and I'll just take this outside the Mormon community for just a second, just because it's an easy example, but if I believe that God is real, and I have a friend who's an atheist and who believes that God is not real, but we are both passionately dedicated to trying to figure out the truth and to trying to learn how to live our lives in, in a good and a faithful way, um, to, and ethically, then there's really no reason for conflict. You know, one of my favorite thinkers is uh, Camus, and I remember reading The Plague, and his depiction of, you know, selfless love in that novel is, is beautiful and inspiring. So, yeah, he's an atheist, but you know what? He can be my brother any day, and I can get along with him because there's something deeper. One of us is wrong. You know, I believe he's wrong. I believe atheism is not correct. But I can live side by side with an atheist, not just in tolerance, but in unity. If below that, we, we, are, we are both dedicated to this ideal of learning and of developing and becoming a better person. And if that's true between an atheist and a theist, then it must be so much more true between, you know, I don't know, pick your stereotype, the, uh, the Leahona Mormons and the Iron Rod Mormons, right? So there's direct applicability, especially to us as Mormons, since we have this claim that we're going to be set about building dying. Well, I think this is an aspect to how we can actually make small incremental steps in that direction. Cool. Yeah, I really like that. And, uh, you know, I think uh, you're right. We forget <laughs> about the Zionism in, in, in Morm- that, that used to be so prevalent in Mormonism. And uh, it's not something we really talk about a lot. And so how... How can we create um, Zion in a 21st century existence? But before we talk about that, because I, I know that's that's definitely something we want to uh, dive into, um, I want to I want to talk about sort of how epistemic humility, what what relation it has to you know principles that that we value in Mormonism, like faith and and testimony. And things like that. How, you know, in your own life and in your own sort of spiritual understanding and your own relationship to Mormonism, what role does epistemic humility play um, in your own personal belief system? Well, epistemic humility provides me with my model of faith. And I'm not going to claim that I understand faith perfectly, obviously, because I'm trying to be humble. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it's given me the, the best model that I can think of. And I, and I believe it's very compatible with, with Scripture, with Alma 32, um, and also the New Testament, and the verses currently escaping me. Um, whoever wants to know if my doctrine basically lets him try it out. And so for me, the model here is Hume, who um, pointed out that there's actually no rational basis for believing in the law of causality. So the idea that A causes B, we don't ever actually get to see the cause. We can see that A happens, and then we can see that B happens right after that. But we can never actually have any evidence 
of the causation itself. And I won't go all through Hume, but that's kind of one of the major critiques that he's making. And so he basically says it's irrational to believe that the sun will rise tomorrow. He's willing to go that that extreme. He's just like, nope, there's straight up no reason to believe it. And well, if that's true, then he's attacking, you know, all of science. Because science is based on observation and experimentation and empiricism, right? And it's based on being able to, to derive causation from a series of observations and especially from controlled experiments. So according to him, we don't have any rational basis for that. If you're going to try to get around his critique, then you have to do something like, well, imagine that we just assume that causality is true just for the sake of assuming it. And then we do a bunch of experiments and we find out that it works. You know, lo and behold, we can build a computer, we can build a car, right? By assuming causality is true and trying it out, we get all these fruits that come from it. Technology, science, development, all these good things have happened. None of these things will ever actually prove that our initial assumption is correct. We're never going to get the certainty. We're never going to have knowledge. But by being being willing to take a leap of faith, we're then able to gather some evidence where we can go back and say, was that original leap of faith a good idea? Because sometimes it's not. Sometimes you do an experiment, you get bad results. So for me, what that did is it kind of rationalized the whole concept of faith. So for me, there isn't really a big difference. In fact, there's no difference at all between somebody who believes in the scientific method and somebody who believes in the Book of Mormon. Now, obviously, the type of evidence that you gather is different. There is a difference between science and religion. Science is based on quantifiable evidence and objective evidence, and you can all share it and repeat each other's results. You know, if I go and pray and say that I have a spiritual testimony of the Book of Mormon, that's no way to replicate that. So there are differences. But the basic model is actually the same. So for me, epistemic humility kind of fleshes out what Mormons might mean when we talk about faith and how it can be rational to have faith. Cool. Well, what, what we're talking about here and, and really you know, where it's going to take us ultimately is, is where this fits into modern Mormon culture is, is being comfortable with uncertainty. Is that, is that basically what we're talking about? Yeah. And sort of admitting and sort of conceding the fact that we may not have everything figured out. And, and as you said, sort of in the sort of the opening, uh, comment of one of your, uh, I think on the times and season, Seasons post that you did was, um, you know, we may the things <laughs> the things we think we know may not be true, and there are things that we don't know that we don't know, you know. And so, what I want to sort of frame out is how that relates to things like testimony and having faith and things like that. And I think we've sort of uh, started to cover a lot of that stuff. Is there anything else you kind of want to add add to that? Uh, no, I mean, I, I want to hear where you're going next. So. Um, where I'm going next is, um, and this may be my own bias coming into play and my own experience when it comes to uh, Mormon culture, is you know when I go to church, um, and really you know my whole life as I've gone to church, and this is not to, in any way to disparage uh, Mormons because, like we said, it's sort of a natural. Uh, tendency for humans to crave certainty and crave understanding and crave being right and having all the answers. I don't, I definitely don't see, um, I don't interact with a lot of epistemic humility um, in my Mormon experience. And what I'm talking about there is, you know, we are very comfortable in the church using, um, you know, framing our testimonies 
with things like I know, you know, I know right. the church is true. I know that President Monson is a prophet of God. I know Jesus Christ leads this church. I know, you know, you know what I mean? I know the Book of Mormon is is real and that it's that it's a true book of scripture. I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. And so that um, you know, on my on my epi- on my epistemic humility meter, I'm seeing you know sort of being in the red in in terms of uh, being really <laughs> certain about stuff, and so and 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 one thing I wanted to sort of uh, throw at you because these are things that I've sort of been discussing with uh, people that I know in my Mormon community, and um, sort of the pushback that I typically get is that uh, the doubt is a bad thing and that uncertainty is a bad thing. And that, you know, when we talk about strengthening our faith, we're talking about strengthening our conviction and strengthening our, our knowledge and our certainty about things. At least that's the, how I detect it. And, um, you know, for example, um, there are, there are scriptures, you know, in the new Testament, the book of Mormon, where, where doubt is sort of villainized a little bit. Um, and um you know i actually don't really want to go through but some of those are like matthew 14:31 uh matthew 21:21 21, mark 11:23 and alma 57:26 and i don't want to going through each of those scriptures but basically you know there there are definitely teachings and sort of concepts and and those are just the scriptures then we could go into things like conference talks and the church curriculum where you know we are and you know where we even see ensign articles that the title is we do not doubt and and so I'm wondering, you know, how we can how you reconcile sort of that aspect of Mormon discourse with what you're promoting here with epistemic humility. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So what are your uh, what are your thoughts there? <laughs> I'm just trying to get them organized because there's a couple of things I want to talk. Sorry, about. that was that was a very compounded question. <laughs> but um, okay. anyway, take your time. So, tell me tell me what you think. All right. Um, so first of all, I think that you're right that part of the drive we see towards constantly saying, I know the church is true or I know whatever, is just due to the you know, kind of existence. People want to believe that they know, and I don't think that they do know um, a lot of the times. I think they're earnest, and I think they're, they're acting in good faith, um, but they don't. Um, and part of that is because we're taught that it is a gift, right, to know that Let's see, it's in Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah, to some it is given to know. To some, right, so yeah, to some yeah. is given to know and some is given to believe. And part of what it's saying is that these are good things, so we should all want to know, right? But by definition, it's also telling you that we don't all know, because different gifts are given to different people. And if knowledge is one of those gifts, then not everybody has it. So when I talk about epistemic humility, one thing I want to make clear is I'm not telling somebody else that they can't know. Um, I don't think there is any possible way for a person to have real certainty um, based on human power. Supernatural intervention to give somebody a kind of special witness, well, okay, then I'm not going to argue against that, and I'm certainly not going to tell somebody else that they don't know. I just know that I don't know, and it's not within you know the, the, the power of human beings on their own to come to that kind of knowledge. Um, so, so partly it's People wanting, you know, they they want to to follow the gifts of the Spirit, and I think they're getting a little ahead of themselves and and perhaps imagining they have them a little bit before they do. Some people actually do. Some people, when they say, I know, they do know, and I certainly would not want to argue uh, with them at all. Um, But when it comes to to trying to quote scriptures in in favor of this position that doubt is bad, I think that's a mistake. 
Um, first of all, because as we just talked about, the scriptures tell you that not everybody knows. Um, and secondly, because the, uh, well, just while we're at it, the scriptures also say, be, be therefore perfect, right? So not everything that is mentioned in the scriptures necessarily do we get angry at people if they don't do it right away, right? So perhaps there's an extent to which, yeah, we doubt, and we're also imperfect. That's just, you know, we should be tolerant of that. You wouldn't want to yell at somebody in church and say, well, you're not being perfect, and that's right in the scriptures. What's your problem? You know, that's not, that's not an appropriate response to, <laughs> right. to a failure to, to live to a command. But lastly, I just think that it's a misinterpretation of the word doubt. Um, I think I believe that when the scriptures talk about doubt not, they're talking about something that's a little, I would say it's cynicism as opposed to skepticism. Um, Because one thing, you know, okay, so we want to believe things for reasons, right? And there are good reasons to want to believe that the church isn't true. If you find the rules really obnoxious, or, you know, for a variety of reasons, you might want to not believe the church is true, and you might be going out actively finding reasons. And I'm not, I'm certainly not accusing everybody who has doubts of doing this. I'm just saying this is a type of doubt, where you're kind of corrosively looking for reasons to sabotage your own testimony. That's not a good idea. But I think that's quite different from the kind of passive doubt that we just experience in the natural course of being human beings. Um, and I'm just reminded of the, the scripture in, in Mark chapter 9, where a man is coming to Christ asking for help with his, you know, with his child. Um, and what's really interesting about, about what he says is he kind of knows right away. He says, Lord, I believe, because he knows he's supposed to, right? Because the Lord blesses those who have faith. But then he immediately says, help thou mine unbelief. Right? So he's trying to believe. He's struggling for faith, but he's doubting. He doubts. And the Lord does not say, well, come back when you've got that figured out. You know, the Lord accepts his offering, his attempt to believe. So one of the things I'm saying about doubt is not necessarily that it's a great thing that we should all engage in for fun. I'm saying that we should be accepting of where we really are. You know, maybe it's possible that if I was more righteous, I would doubt less. That might be true, but it doesn't do me any good to wish for it. I have a lot of weaknesses, and I, you know, all I can do is own up to the weaknesses and, and accept them and work with them, right? There's, there's no sense, you know, being guilty, feeling guilty about something you've done wrong is one thing. Feeling guilty about who you are at this point, and that borders on the on, on arrogance, right? It's like you're saying, I cannot believe that I'm not a better person, right? And, and think about what that's really saying. You, you can't believe that you're not, you expect to be better than you are. You know, we just need to accept where we are at our point in life and work from there. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's I think it's very unhelpful this this culture we have of saying um, I know the church is true partially because it's even if we think that doubt is a weakness, which I'm not so sure about. Even if that's true, berating somebody for experiencing a weakness is a terrible response. Um, when I was on my mission, I remember a very difficult meeting I had with a, a woman and her daughter, and um, we were kind of summoned too late because they had already pretty much made the decision to leave the church, and there were different reasons for it, but. The, the older, the, the mother, she told us, look, I went to the Lord every Sunday, and every Sunday everybody got up and said, I know, I know, I know. And she said, I believe, but I couldn't say I know, and I felt too guilty to say I believe. I felt like I was failing, so I didn't say anything. And then it just it, it ate at her. It, she got bitter. She got angry. She was like, how come all these people know and I don't know? And finally she just had enough. She says, this is an impossible standard, and, and I refuse to be, be subject to it anymore. 
so we're creating a toxic environment with all this talk about knowing and knowing and knowing all the time, when the scriptures give us plenty of examples of righteous people who are blessed by the Lord who don't know. They struggle with doubt, and that's okay. So the last thing I do want to say, though, is that having said that, that it's wrong, I think we also need to be careful about how we try to go about changing the culture, um, because to meet wrong behavior, with wrong behavior of our own, you know, to criticize and to attack people for using the word no too much, that's just going to make the problem worse. Um, I, I think the best we can do, and what I try to do is just, hey, you know, here's what I believe. Um, I think doubt is an intrinsic part of the human existence. I think doubt is necessary in the same way that realizing any kind of weakness or failing is necessary. You have to accept and acknowledge where you actually are before you can embark on an authentic journey to improve yourself. So doubt is necessary, and doubt has upsides and benefits in that it helps you learn and grow from where you are. But I don't spend a lot of time trying to criticize, because what I, what I think is important is to give people um, a, a positive alternative and kind of hope that in time it spreads and that we can have a shift in the culture that isn't based on confrontation. Cool. So, um, yeah, and that, um, that will definitely lead us into sort of what, what I think should be um, our thing to end on, which is, you know, you talked about sort of um, building Zion and becoming a one heart and one mind. But before I, before I wanted to talk about that closing idea of creating Zion, I wanted to first establish why um, uncertainty A isn't bad and B can actually be a good thing. And so um, basically having epistemic humility when it comes to approaching our faith is first of all, um, a good thing because it's acknowledging a reality, which is that we don't <laughs> we don't have it all figured out. Um, it's also good because by allowing uh, by by owning our doubt and owning our uncertainty, it allows us potential to grow and to not be satisfied with what we think we know and to continue to search and to and to grow and, and so on. Um, so you know, I think. You know what I, I think both your your writings on times and seasons and what you've said here have have presented in my opinion a really good argument for for this concept you know that the doubt should be doubt and uncertainty and having humility um, about our ability to know and understand and grasp truth is is going to be a thing that is beneficial for us even though it's uncomfortable and even though um, even though it makes us feel cognitive dissonance and even though it, it sort of um, goes against that, that natural man inside of us that wants to be right and certain about everything. Um, so is that uh, is that a good sort of brief recap? Is there anything else you want to explore there? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that uncertainty isn't a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. Um, right. And acceptance of uncertainty is a good thing because the alternative is to live in denial. And, you know, that's that damns our progress. It prevents us from, from developing from there. Um, and doubt can be a good or a bad thing, depending on how we mean it. If by doubt we just mean acknowledgement of the fact that we're not certain, then again, that's a good thing. Um, if doubt is, you know, we don't have a strong testimony as perhaps we could, well, not, that might be a bad thing, but it's a bad thing in the sense of being imperfect, and it's something that should be treated with love and respect. You know, we don't all have the same gifts, and we're not all at the same point in our spiritual journey. And then I do think there is a kind of doubt that is that is kind of corrosive and that is 
you know, actively looking for reasons to not believe or to sell contention. And, and so there is a sense in which doubt is bad. Right. Um, but it just depends on how we mean the word. Right. Yeah. We're bumping up to the limits of language, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. And so. people forget that the scripture is not a theological treatise, right? It's, it's not written, you know, with a bunch of technical terminology. It's not a legal right, code. Right. In philosophy or legal, they start out by saying, you know, here's what all the terms mean. They give very precise definitions. <laughs> right. <laughs> faith and grace and doubt. And there's no there's no appendix to the scriptures where they're like, and this is exactly what we mean. So they're, they're using the words as common vernacular. And we can't try to impose yeah. some kind of hyper-technicality on, on right. the words and scriptures. Imperfect models expressed through imperfect language. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So, so let's talk about let's talk about building a Zion community. Um, so, like I like um, I sort of teased before, and what you've actually pointed out several times, um, you know, we personally as human beings aren't comfortable with feeling uncertainty and feeling sort of unsure about ourselves and unsure about what's, what's going on about us. And to, when we experience it, it's, it, it makes us, you know, sort of sick to our stomach and, you know, a- anxious. And that's uh, that's all part of cognitive dissonance. Um, we do that individually. We also do that as a group, you know, where, um, you know, as you pointed out before, if somebody, um, wants to express their doubts and their uncertainty, often they can be met with, um, a lot of hostility from a group who doesn't want that to be introduced into the uh, sort of discourse. And I think um, I know from personal experience that that happens in Mormon culture. And I think it's not a far stretch to assume that that just any time a bunch of hu- group of humans that are trying to um, sort of be on the same page, um, that they would react in a, in, in a similar fashion. Um, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, definitely the last part as well. This isn't a, a problem specific to Mormon culture or right. Mormon theology. It's just human nature. Of course, of course. So um, so the question is, is that if you've got um, a group of people that like to feel really certain, they really latch on to um, the the idea that they've got, you know, if the, the, understand they don't have all truth, but they have the most truth. They have more than anybody. And... If you have um, a minority, I wouldn't even necessarily say that's true. Just of Mormonism in general, by the way, I, th- I think Mormons have a very special kind of truth, but I don't think and it, I, it makes a lot of sense to start saying we have more or less. I, I I would agree with you. I'm just going with what I've been taught. Okay, sure, sure, um, sure. Sort of a um, uh, culturally that you know we're the the reason you know. Mormonism is is awesome, and the church is awesome because we have the most truth. It's not that we have all the truth, but we have the most. And that's I'm just saying that I'm just repeating what I've heard growing up in in Mormon culture. And I and okay. I wouldn't be surprised if you found um, a lot of Mormons that that feel that way. Um, I could be wrong, but um, when you have sort of people that that um, you know would want to express you know some admittance of doubt and uncertainty. Um, sometimes there can be a, a visceral reaction to that. So in that environment, you know, what are ways that we can be better at addressing that and dealing with that in our own community? Well, I think it's important um, as much as possible to be independent and to be patient. Um, speaking of, as a type of person who might say something that's going to draw fire, um, by independent, I just mean that 
I, I personally feel that the leaders of the church have much too heavy a burden in terms of our expectations for them. Um, if, if you believe, um, I, as, as I kind of believe, if you, that the institution of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is ordained of God and is absolutely essential and necessary, but that it's not everything, and that a lot of the important work of salvation happens within individual family homes and between friends and kind of outside of the formal infrastructure, then you believe in a, in a, in a certain degree of independence from the institution. Um, and this is, I think, you know, strengthened by the Doctrine and Covenants, where we're not supposed to be commanded in all things. Well, keep in mind that if, if you're genuinely independent, you shouldn't be looking towards the leadership to kind of affirm your independence, right? That, that counteracts the independence. So I think it's important for members of the Church to be independent and to understand that that, that, that might very well never receive any kind of official you know, affirmation from the leadership or from the institution, and why should it? The whole point is that you're supposed to be independent, right? So so seeking a degree of independence without bitterness um, and just understanding that, you know, the Lord expects all of us to, to, to do what we can. When, it, when I was on a mission, I always saw that in, in Hungary was, was still a relative in the area, and so there would be very small branches. And it seemed like in all the branches, there were a couple of members you could kind of call the rocks. And they just seems to be so much more stable and dependable and reliable and kind of the, the branch stood or fall based around how many of those guys you could find. Well, if it's possible for you to be that kind of person in your ward, then you should be that kind of person. And it's exhausting and it's a trial and, and don't be bitter about it because everybody has trials and everybody, you know, has those types of things. So I just kind of, I kind of want to express that, you know, to intellectual Mormons who believe a little bit differently, it's okay, um, but expect that there will be some difficulty and try to bear it with patience and with good grace. Um, and then when it comes to interacting with, with you know, those Mormons who, who might find some of this stuff threatening, I think the two things to keep in mind are, first of all, if you're truly being epistemically humble, then you kind of have to believe in the wisdom of the crowd a little bit which means that you be authentic to your belief and your perspective as you understand it, and you allow other people to be authentic to their belief and their perspective, and you have a kind of hope that in aggregate you'll figure it out. And you have a kind of understanding that whatever you think is not actually true, but your contribution to the community is to speak as authentically and peacefully as you can about the things you believe and allow others to do the same. So expect there to be some disharmony. And then the second thing is we really, you can't attack, I think, what other people do. I think that's where the contention comes in. So if, if somebody is kind of reacting to what you say with a little bit of hostility, to react to their hostility by saying you're wrong for having that hostility is probably not wise. I think what you always need to try to do is, is, is to be positive and to show the benefit. And so in this case, about epistemic humility, I would want to say, well, well, look at the benefits of being tolerant of each other. It allows us to construct a kind of Zion community. And I'm not saying that this would just make all conflict go away and this is the magic answer, but I believe it's what we should strive to do. So that rather than be confrontational and kind of demand recognition and affirmation from the leadership or from our fellow members, we just consistently present what we think are the benefits of, of what we believe in. And we talk about the positives of what we believe in. And we try to gently, you know, have an influence on an individual level in our in our wards and in our communities. You know, that's that's certainly what I try to do. I'm I'm a gospel doctrine teacher in my ward. I mean I don't consider it my job to teach my personal philosophy. I, I try to inject some of the things that I think are important, but I try to also 
understand that I'm probably wrong. I know I'm wrong about some things and can leave room for others. So you're, you're, you're trying to move the aggregate as opposed to trying to convince everybody to, to agree with you. You see yourself as building something that's larger than you or the person you're talking to, and you work towards that goal. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, I think that that's all. I think there's a lot of wisdom in uh, in that approach. Um, you know, what else, um, you know, did you want to share about a, a, a sort of modern Mormon approach to creating Zion? Um, for me, that's about as far as I've gotten. It's just this <laughs> belief that if, if we can all understand or, or find kind of a, a common ground at the, at the basement level, as opposed to trying to find common ground at the first floor, but go down one level and, and acknowledge and recognize that we're all engaged in, in an activity together, then I think we can really begin, you know, a little bit by little bit, to, to build an infrastructure where, where we can have a kind of unity that is deeper than our superficial differences. Um, and just towards that goal, I think one of the, one of the things I realized is kind of beautiful is, is the fact that the sacrament is such an open ceremony. Um, and one of the things I've learned from, you know, studying economics and game theory is the importance of public information. And I mean that in like a technical sense, common knowledge. So everybody knows it. Well, I'm not talking about looking at your individual neighbor to see who protects the sacrament or not. Definitely not. I'm just talking about the fact that as a community, the fact that we're passing around the sacrament and renewing our bonds, our, our covenants publicly, should really be a strong signal to help us build the kind of unity that I'm talking about. Because if you and your friends don't agree on some theological point, keep in mind that you're both, you know, either partaking of the sacrament or striving to take the sacrament. And you're reminded of that every single Sunday. We all come to the same church where we don't hear very much of the talk because our kids are crazy and there's not a lot of point to it sometimes, except for the fact that we're taking the sacrament. And it's no coincidence that we do it all together. We could bless the sacrament in our homes, but then we would miss that information, that reminder that we should all trust ourselves, uh, trust each other. So I don't know. I just, I, and that's something that, you know, I didn't figure out until I was 30 years old. Hey, maybe this is why we take this acting. But I really think that the church as an institution is designed to foster this kind of, of belief. Um, and okay, so I'll, I'll say one more thing. When I was on my mission, I don't remember which apostle it was. I think it was Elder Holland. He came and he did a little bit of, of preaching. He read one scripture that um, was kind of confusing from the Doctrine and Covenants and gave what he, he said was, was the correct understanding of it. It's from Doctrine and Covenants, section 29, um, verses 30-32. And it's talking about how when the Lord was first creating, he created everything um, spiritually first and then temporally, which we kind of all understand. But then in verse 32, he says, first spiritual, second secondly temporal, which is the beginning of my work, and again, first temporal, and secondly spiritual, which is the last of my work. So that's confusing, and I've never really seen it pointed out before, that in the last of his work, he created temporally first and and spiritually second. And what we were told is that this refers to the restoration of the gospel, and that the temporal restoration was the bringing back to earth of the Church as an institution, kind of as a framework, but that the spiritual creation has to do with the spiritual awakening of the ordinary everyday members, and that that comes after the restoration of the institution, and is something that is only taking part, taking um, place right now. So I believe that the Church institution is ordained to God and is inspired to create this kind of spiritual world. So. That's, that's way cool. I really like that. And so, 
And another thought I had when you were talking about the sacrament, you know, just the act of taking the sacrament is uh, is us admitting to ourselves that that we're not perfect and that we need we need more. And you know, that's true about us in terms of our the mistakes that we make and also the things that that we know and we don't know. And to be to sort of humble ourselves in all ways and take that before the Lord and offer that, you know, I think that's sort of part of what the sacrament is all about. Absolutely. And, and I think it's really cool, you know, you wisely pointed out that uh, it's something we all do together. Um, cool. Well, I really like all that. Um, I realize we uh, kind of skipped over, um, you know, we've talked a lot about your writings at Times and Seasons. Um, tell us about um, the because you run you you run two blogs right or, or um, <laughs> it depends on the day. I have one main blog that I run for myself. Okay, um, well tell it. tell us about your blog. Okay, yeah. Um, so it's difficultrun.nathanielgivens.com. And earlier on, when I was talking about the importance of difficulty, um, that's where the inspiration for the, uh, for the for the blog comes from. And I just do a variety of um, political and philosophical theological stuff there. Um, and then I'll be starting a fiction blog, but I haven't started it yet. So oh, cool. It. Awesome. Well, um, we want our listeners to, uh, of course, check out... So that was uh, difficultrun.nathanielgivens.com. Was that right? That's right. Okay, cool. Um, and we'll put a... We'll, of course, put a link up for that. Uh, so people can um, check out more of the cool thoughts and insight that Nathaniel has for all of us. And then, um, of course, we'll link to his uh, series that he did for Times and Seasons as well. And um, is there anything else you'd like to say in closing, Nathaniel? Uh, no, just uh, thanks, Mike, so much for this opportunity. It was, uh, it was a great conversation. Yeah, I I really have gotten a lot of utility out of it. And you know, I'm really glad that I ran across um, ran across your writings because, like I said, it's sort of um, <laughs> it helped describe the the approach that I was developing in a way that I wasn't able to on my own. So I, I really appreciate that, and you know, I hope that our listeners uh, get a lot of, out of that as well. Um, sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, you know, that, that's one of the reasons I started writing was so that I could also benefit. You know, I figured I'd throw the ideas out there and then from the responses I could learn more and, and that's what happened and I appreciate it. So, um, so yeah, I, I just, I love being a part of this conversation and I just, you know, I guess if there's one last thing I was going to say is how optimistic I am about the future of our faith. I just, uh, I, I think that there's so much room for growth and improvement and, and, and I'm very excited about it. So. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast, Nathaniel. Um, we really thank you, and I know that um, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that our listeners will will be appreciative of it as well. Um, on our on our website, uh, there is a comment section, and if people want to uh, join us there and um, participate, and uh, if you have any questions or clarifications, or um, if there's any other thoughts you'd like to share, I'm sure once we get this uh, post up, that Nathaniel will check in on there and. Um, engage with our listeners there. Um, and uh, other than that, I think uh, I think that's pretty much a wrap. Thanks for thanks for coming, Nathaniel. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace 
Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. See you, see you, see you.